All right. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, it's been a while uh, since I did the reading. I think it was before my birthday, I think, was the last time. Or we did it just after my birthday. I don't remember. Is there an easy way for me to check that? Absolutely. Am I going to? No. Um, but we finished off our first book. Uh, we read uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And we're going to be headed into the picture of Dorian Gray, which I always mispronounce, or not mispronounce, but misremember as the portrait of Dorian Gray for some reason. I don't know why. But yeah, we're going to be reading this. Um, I'm super excited about, about reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, super excited about getting into this book. Uh, I haven't read it. like 10 years which is something that makes me feel really old when I say that out loud because I yeah because I graduated high school in 2020 in, in 2011 so and I don't think I read this in my last semester of high school so regardless 10 years ago Anyway, let's not think about that. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray is... Um, you're older than me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, uh, like, there's nothing wrong with, with me having graduated high school 10 years ago. It's, it's putting it into words. You know, that the act of saying, I graduated from high school 10 years ago, feels makes me feel old, especially when I think about the fact that I am currently a high school teacher. Um, a little weird. A little weird. Um, but, you know, we make it work. So, um, <laughs> I just... <laughs> glanced at the back of the book, uh, and I feel like I want to read this now. Uh, so written in, in his distinctively dazzling manner, Oscar Wilde's story of a fashionable young man who sells his soul for eternal youth and beauty is the author's most popular work. The tale of Dorian Gray's moral disintegration caused a scandal when it first appeared in 1890, but though Wilde was attacked for the novel's corrupting influence, he responded that there is, in fact, a terrible moral in Dorian Gray. Just a few years later, the book and the aesthetic moral dilemma it presented became issues in the trials occasioned by Wilde's homosexual liaisons, which resulted in his imprisonment. Of Dorian Gray's relationship to autobiography, Wilde noted in a letter, Basil Hallward is what I think I am. Lord Henry is what the world thinks me. Dorian is what I would like to be. In other ages, perhaps. Um, I glanced at the line, Wilde's homosexual liaison, um, <clears throat> which I read as wild homosexual liaisons, and I was like, yes! <laughs> um, so yeah, this, this book is... Uh, um, 
a lovely instance of, of queer history. Um, while Oscar Wilde is not a an unproblematic character, um, he is still an important figure in uh, European queer history. Um, and I'm uh, super proud to be uh, you know, reading into reading his story again um, as an older queer um, who has, you know, learned a lot since the last time I read this and experienced a lot and I really wish I remembered exactly what year it was. I, th I don't think I had dated a guy I think my only my I think my only relationships have been with women at that point. And so this was like an exploration for me of queerness in a space where, you know, I haven't really had a chance to explore that and I went to Catholic school so it's not like we could really talk about it. Um but this was on my school's reading list. In fact, this is the one, the copy that I read in high school. Um, which I, I keep saying that, but it's, I'm just so happy that it survived all this time. Um, very pleased with it. Uh, it's not a huge book. It's about 300 pages. Nope, nope, those are notes. About 250 pages, but the text is pretty large. Um, so... I don't expect it's going to take us too long to get through it. I think it's actually going to take less time than Frankenstein, uh, which isn't a bad thing. I thought, you know, well, maybe I want I want there's some to be long. But then I thought about what if we did. Um, oh yeah, Oscar Wilde was very queer. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's. I wish I remembered all the stories because there's there's a whole bunch of stories about Oscar Wilde being this incredibly flamboyant character who loved to just mess with people's expectations of who he was and uh he was purposefully like trying to set trends just to see people react to his trends that he's setting and then turn it around and it was just yeah it's great um so i'm really excited to to get into into that, but I don't think it's going to take as long. I think uh, one thing that would be fun to do after this at some point would be to do some short stories. Sorry, I'm looking at my bookshelf, which is right there, which I shouldn't be doing. I should probably just be talking into the microphone. Um, yeah, uh, reading some short stories because I have a, a really nice edition of uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales that I would love to get into. Um, and knowing myself, I probably wouldn't ever actually end up reading them. Unless it was for this, so it could be kind of fun to explore uh, and read a few of them. Uh, I also have um, a copy of uh, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe that I want to get into. Um, there was another one. Oh, I had some H.G. Wells stuff as well. I was at my, my parents' house and I was kind of trolling through their books, trying to find books that were definitely in the public domain that were safe. Uh, so I have those that are kind of lined up. Um, but we'll see how that goes, how I'm feeling after this. Um. <laughs> I just want to see, does it say... 
Yeah, there's a little, there's like a brief um, biography of Oscar Wilde. Maybe I will read that um, really quickly, just so we get an idea of who he was as an as a person. Uh, so Oscar Wilde was born in Dublin in 1854. His father was a celebrated surgeon, his mother a supporter of Irish independence, who, pre who presided over literary salons in Ireland and England. Although his brilliance as a classicist at Dublin's Trinity College won him a scholarship to Magdalen College, Oxford, Wilde failed in his attempts at an academic career. Instead, he set his sights on the literary and artistic worlds of London. Fusing the influences of Ruskin, the Pre-Raphaelites, Walter Pater, and Gautier's L'Art pour l'Art, he made himself the most visible manifestation of the aesthetic movement. By 1881, a burlesque of Wilde provided the protagonist for the Gilbert and Gulliver operetta Patience. It was to exploit the popularity of the operetta, in fact, that the producer of Doily Katz underwrote Wilde's immensely successful lecture tour of America. Married in 1884 to Constance Lloyd, Wilde worked briefly as a magazine editor while publishing poetry, plays, fairy tales, and essays. The picture of Dorian Gray was commissioned by J.M. Stoddard, the Philadelphia publisher of Lippincott's monthly magazine. It appeared in 1890 and immediately gained a certain notoriety for being mawkish and nauseous, unclean, effeminate, and contaminating. Which, when I read that, <laughs> I'm like, hell yes, I want to read this. Um... When it was published as a book the following year, Wilde greatly revised and expanded the text, filling it out with a melodramatic subplot and adding a preface that defended his aesthetic philosophy. As for the book's value as autobiography, Wilde noted in a letter that the main characters are different in way are in different ways reflections of him. In the early 90s, Wilde was at the center of an artistic milieu characterized by the yellow book the Rhymer's Club, and the art of Aubrey Beardsley. He wrote a poetic drama, Salome, in French, but it was banned in England. The play was published in book form with illustrations by Beardsley in 1894. and was produced in Paris in 1896. He achieved success as a popular, uh, as a popular playwright. Uh, in 1895, two of his plays were on the London stage simultaneously, and he was acknowledged as a pivotal figure in English literary life, admired for his wit and eloquence. Since at least the mid-1880s, Wilde had lived a sexual double life, and in 1893 he distanced himself from his family by taking rooms at the Savoy Hotel. He had by then embarked on a passionate relationship with the considerably younger Lord Alfred Douglas, the English translator of Salome whom he had met the year after he wrote The Picture of Dorian Gray. In March 1895, Wilde undertook a libel action against the Marquis of Queensbury, Lord Alfred's father, who had denounced Wilde as a sodomite. Wilde withdrew the suit following damaging cross-examination by the Marquis' defense attorney, a former classmate of Wilde's. The question was, have you ever adored a young man madly? The answer, I have never given adoration to anybody except myself. Shortly thereafter, Wilde was arrested for homosexual offenses 
and underwent two trials before being sentenced to hard labor at Wandsworth Prison and Reading Jail. A long recriminatory letter to Douglas, written while in prison, was eventually published in De Profundis. Released in 1897, Wilde left for France, calling himself Sebastian Melmoth, a name taken from a Gothic novel, Melmoth the Wanderer, written by Wilde's great-uncle. A poem based on his experience in prison, The Ballad of Reading Jail, was published in 1898. His health destroyed and bankrupted by legal expenses, Wilde lived in Paris for three years, making conversion to Roman Catholicism Catholicism, just before his death in November 1900, he was buried in the cemetery of Père Lachaise. So this is what I'm talking about when I say that Oscar Wilde was like a an incredible person who just loved to like say very dramatic things. When asked the question, have you ever adored a young man madly? His answer was, I have never given an adoration to anybody except myself completely ignoring the question and just being like, nah, I'm awesome. Like, just very interesting. Very interesting person. So, I am very much looking forward to getting into this, and I think we're just going to start. Uh, we're going to read the preface first, um, which is just like, it's a it's two pages. It's not very long. page and a half, really. Uh, and then we will get into the story itself. So, the preface. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest, as the lowest form of criticism, is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meaning in beautiful things are cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in a glass. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist. But the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express everything. The thought and language are to the artist's instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist materials for an art. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. From the point of view of feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. 
Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. Oscar Wilde. So this was the preface that he had added to his book after it was um, derided <laughs> and torn apart by critics. Um, basically a big ol' up yours, um, to put it kindly, to um, anyone who was watching or who read his book and thought it was disgusting. Um, that if you read too much into it, that's on you, friend. Um, there was a line that I really enjoyed. Um, There's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written, that's all. To me, that <clears throat> that line is such a uh, a lovely way of just saying like, look, my books is my book's good or it's bad. Like there's no there's no morality to this book. It's either it's either a well written book or it's a badly written book. Um, but it's also a dangerous line. Because that means that people can write whatever they want. And it doesn't matter what's in it. All that matters is that it's either well-written or poorly written. <clears throat> Especially since there are some very historically important books um, that come out later on. Um, I can think of, you know, uh, the one that springs to mind immediately is, uh, you know, Mein Kampf, which is by all accounts, actually a terribly written book. Um, but regardless, if we can't attack the morals of that book, you know, what's, what are we going to say then? That it's just a badly written book and we should ignore it? I don't think that's necessarily what he's advocating for here. I'm just saying that that's part of the argument that he had. Um, and that it's still a potentially dangerous argument. Um, I guess he would probably argue that it's that Mein Kampf is not exactly a work of art, um, but rather um, an essay that seeks to convince people of troubling and questionable, um, questionable at best, um, rhetoric. Anyway, one thing I'm struck by in this is the the way that it's written. Um, it's almost written in as poetry. Um, each line is its own paragraph. Each sentence, rather, is its own paragraph. Um, for the most part. And it's almost like he's hammering, he's saying very clear points. Um, as if he has thought it through quite a bit. Which I'm sure he has. Let's get into... The, port the picture, I'll get it eventually, of Dorian Gray. The mawkish and nauseous, unclean, 
effeminate and contaminating novel. It was, yeah, no, the, absolutely, the preface is beautifully written just from that, and from what I remember, the prose of this book is actually quite nice. Um, like, in terms, because, you know, there's books that have great story, but the, the writing itself is not great, but the story, the ideas are great, and so you, re you follow it because of that. Um, from what I remember from ten years ago, um, that the prose was, was actually quite nice. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> as I always do, um, we'll be starting with the chapter, and yeah, they're not super long. Depending on how long it takes, uh, I will be reading through the entire chapter and then checking in uh, with the stream. If you have ideas that you want to throw out, comments, questions, whatever, um, you can always just toss them in there. Um, I won't get back to it until I'm done with the chapter, uh, just to keep the flow going, to make sure that everything is, is nicely and neatly organized. Um, and then, um, I'll, then I'll answer the questions um, to kind of keep everything organized together as well. So there's the reading part, and then there's the I'm answering questions and giving my own thoughts part. So, let's begin with chapter one. The studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. From the corner of the divan of Persian saddlebags on which he was lying, smoking, as was his custom, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Wotton could just catch the gleam of the honey-sweet and honey-colored blossoms of a laburnum whose tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs, and now and then the fantastic shadows of birds in flight flitted across the long tusser silk curtains that were f stretched in front of the huge window, producing a kind of momentary Japanese effect, and making him think of those pallid jade-faced painters of Tokyo, who, through the medium of an art that is necessarily immobile, seek to convey the sense of swiftness and motion. The sullen murmur of the bees smoldering their way through the long unmown grass, or circling with monotonous insistence round the dusty gilt, of, gilt horns of the straggling woodbine, seemed to make the stillness more oppressive. The dim roar of London was like the borden note of a distant organ. In the center of the room, Clamped to an upright easel stood the full-length portrait of a young man of extraordinary personal beauty, and in front of it, some little distance away, was sitting the artist himself, Basil Hallward, whose sudden disappearance some years ago caused at the time such public excitement and gave rise to so many strange conjectures. 
as the painter looked at the gracious and comely form he had so skilfully mirrored in his art, a smile of pleasure passed across his face, and seemed about to linger there. But he suddenly started up, and, closing his eyes, placed his fingers upon the lids, as though he sought to imprison within his brain some curious dream from which he feared he might wake. "'It's your best work, Basil. The best thing you have ever done,' said Lord Henry, languidly. "'You must certainly send it next year to Grosvenor. The academy is too large and too vulgar.' Wherever I have gone, whenever I have gone there, there have been either so many people that I have not been able to see the pictures, which was dreadful, or so many pictures that I would not have been able to see the people, which was worse. Grosvenor is really the only place. I don't think I shall send it anywhere, he answered, tossing his head back in that odd way that used to make his friends laugh at him at Oxford. No. I won't send it anywhere. Lord Henry elevated his eyebrows, and looked at him in amazement through the thin blue wreaths of smoke that curled up in such fanciful whirls from his heavy opium-tainted cigarette. Not send it anywhere? My dear fellow, why? Have you any reason? What odd chaps you painters are. You do anything in the world to gain a reputation. As soon as you have one, you seem to want to throw it away. It is silly of you, for there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. A portrait like this should set you far above the young men in England, and make the old men quite jealous, if old men are ever capable of any emotion. I know you will laugh at me, he replied, but I really can't exhibit it. I've put too much of myself into it. Lord Henry stretched himself out on the divan, and laughed. "'Yes, I knew you would. But it is quite true, all the same. "'Too much of yourself in it. Upon my word, Basil, I didn't know you were so vain. "'And I really can't see any resemblance between you and your rugged, strong face "'and coal-black hair and this young Adonis, "'who looks as if he was made out of ivory and rose-leaf.' Why, my dear Basil, he is a Narcissus, and you... Well, of course, you have an intellectual expression and all that, but beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect is in itself a mode of exaggeration. It destroys the harmony of any face. The moment one sits down to think, one becomes all nose or all forehead or something horrid. Look at all the successful men in any of the learned professions, how perfectly hideous they are. Except, of course, in the church. But then, in the church they don't think. A bishop keeps on saying at the age of eighty what he was told to say when he was a boy of eighteen, and as a natural consequence, he always looks absolutely delightful. Your mysterious young friend, whose name you have never told me, but whose picture really fascinates me never thinks. I feel quite sure of that. He is some brainless, beautiful creature who should always be here in winter when we have no flowers to look at, and always here in summer when we want something to chill 
are intelligence. Don't flatter yourself, Basil. You are not in the least like him. You don't understand me, Henry, answered the artist. Of course I'm not like him. I know him that perfectly well. Indeed, I should be sorry to look like him. You shrug your shoulders? I'm telling you the truth. There is a fatality about all physical and intellectual distinction. The sort of fatality that seems to dog through history the faltering steps of kings. It is better not to be different from one's fellows. The ugly and the stupid have the best of it in this world. They can sit at their ease and gape at the play. If they know nothing of victory, they are at least spared the knowledge of defeat. They live as we all should live, undisturbed, indifferent, and without disquiet. They never bring ruin upon others, nor ever receive it from alien hands. Your rank and wealth, Harry, my brains, such as they are, my art, whatever it may be worth, Dorian Gray's good looks, we shall all suffer for what the gods have given us, suffer terribly. Dorian Gray, is that his name? asked Lord Henry walking across the studio towards Basil Hallward. Yes, that's his name. I didn't intend to tell it to you. But why not? Oh, I can't explain. When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It is like surrendering a part of them. I have grown to love secrecy. It seems to be the one thing that can make modern life mysterious or marvelous to us. The commonest thing is delightful, if one only hides it. When I leave town, now, I'd never tell my people where I'm going. If I did, I would lose all my pleasure. It is a silly habit, I dare say. But somehow it seems to bring a great deal of romance into one's life. I suppose you think it me awfully foolish about it. Not at all answered Lord Henry. Not at all, my dear Basil. You seem to forget that I am married, and the one charm of marriage is that it makes a life of deception absolutely necessary for both parties. I never know where my wife is, and my wife never knows what I am doing. When we meet, we do meet occasionally. When we dine out together or go down to the Duke's, we tell each other the most absurd stories with the most serious faces. My wife is very good at it. Much better, in fact, than I am. She never gets confused over her dates, and I always do. But when she does find me out, she makes me no row at all. I sometimes wish she would. She merely laughs at me. I hate the way you talk about your married life, Henry. Harry said Basil Hallward, strolling towards the door that led into the garden. I believe that you are really a very good husband, and that you are thoroughly ashamed of your own virtues. You are an extraordinary fellow. You never say a moral thing, and you never do a wrong thing. Your cynicism is simply a pose. Being natural is simply a pose. And the most irritating pose I know, cried Lord Henry, 
laughing. And the two young men went out into the garden together and ensconced themselves on a long bamboo seat that stood in the shade of a tall laurel bush. The sunlight slipped over the polished leaves. In the grass, white daisies were tremulous. After a pause, Lord Henry pulled out his watch. "'I'm afraid I must be going, Basil,' he murmured. "'And before I go, I insist on your answering a question I put to you some time ago.' "'What was that?' said the painter, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground. "'You know quite well.' "'I do not, Henry.' "'Harry, I'll get it right.' "'Well, I will tell you what it is. "'I want you to explain to me "'why you won't exhibit Dorian Gray's picture. "'I want the real reason.' "'I I told you the real reason. "'No, you did not. "'You said it was because there was too much of yourself in it. "'Now, that is childish. "'Harry!' said Basil Hallward, looking him straight in the face. Every portrait that is ever painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. It is rather the painter who, on the colored canvas, reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I am afraid that I have shown in it the secret of my own soul. Lord Henry laughed. "'And what is that?' he asked. "'I will tell you,' said Hallward, but an expression of perplexity came over his face. "'I am all expectation, Basil,' continued his companion, glancing at him. "'Oh, there's very little to tell, Harry,' answered the painter, "'and I'm afraid you will hardly understand it. "'Perhaps you will hardly believe it.' Lord Henry smiled, and leaning down, plucked a pink petaled daisy from the grass and examined it. "'I am quite sure I shall understand it,' he replied, gazing intently at the little golden-white feathered disc. "'And as for believing things, I can believe anything, provided that it is quite incredible.' The wind shook some blossoms from the trees, and the heavy lilac blooms with their clustering stars moved to and fro in the languid air. A grasshopper began to chirrup by the wall, and like a blue thread a long, thin dragonfly floated past on its brown gauze wings. Lord Henry felt as if he could hear Basil Hallward's heart beating, and wondered what was coming. The story is simply this said the painter after some time. Two months ago, I went to a crush at Lady Brandon's. You know we poor artists have to show ourselves in society from time to time, just to remind the public that we're not savages. But an evening coat and a white tie, as you once told me, anybody, even a stockbroker, can gain a reputation for being civilized. Well, after I had been in the room for about ten minutes, talking to huge, overdressed dowagers and tedious academicians, I suddenly became conscious that someone was looking at me. I turned halfway around and saw Dorian Gray for the first time. 
When our eyes met, I felt that I was growing pale. A curious sensation of terror came over me. I knew that I had come face to face with someone whose mere personality was so fascinating that if I allowed it to do so, it would absorb my whole nature, my whole soul, my very art itself. I did not want any external influence in my life. You know yourself, Harry, how independent I am by nature. I have always been my own master, had at least always been so, till I met Dorian Gray. Then, but I don't know how to explain it to you. Something seemed to tell me that I was on the verge of a terrible crisis in my life. I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I grew afraid and turned to quit the room. It was not conscience that made me do so, it was a sort of cowardice. I take no credit to myself for trying to escape. Conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm, that's all. I don't believe that, Harry, and I don't believe you do either. However, whatever was my motive, and it may certainly have been pride, for I used to be very proud, I certainly struggled to the door. There, of course, I stumbled against Lady Brandon. "'You're not going to run away so soon, Mr. Hallward,' she screamed out. "'You know her curiously shrill voice?' "'Yes, she is a peacock in everything but beauty,' said Lord Henry, pulling the daisy to bits with his long, nervous fingers. "'I could not get rid of her. She brought me up to the royalties and people with stars and garters, and elderly ladies with gigantic tiaras and parrot noses. She spoke of me as her dearest friend.' I had only met her once before, but she took it into her head to lionize me. I believe some picture of mine had made a great success at the time, at least had been chatted about in the penny newspapers, which is the nineteenth-century standard of immortality. Suddenly I found myself face to face with the young man whose personality had so strangely stirred me. We were quite close, almost touching. Our eyes met again. It was reckless of me, but I asked Lady Brandon to introduce me to him. Perhaps it was not so reckless after all. It was simply inevitable. We would have spoken to each other without any introduction. I am sure of that. Dorian told me so afterwards. He, too, felt that we were destined to know each other. And how did Lady Brandon describe this wonderful young man? asked his companion. I know she goes in for giving a rapid précis of all her guests. I remember her giving me up a, to a truculent, red-faced old gentleman covered all over with orders and ribbons, and hissing into my ear in a tragic whisper, which must have been perfectly audible to everybody in the room, the most astounding details. I simply fret, fled, I like to find out people for myself, but Lady Brandon treats her guests exactly as an auctioneer treats his goods. She either explains them entirely away, or tells one everything about them except what one wants to know. Poor Lady Brandon, you are hard on her, Harry, said Hallward listlessly. My dear fellow, she tried to found a salon. 
and only succeeded in opening a restaurant. How could I admire her? But tell me, what did she say about Mr. Dorian Gray? Oh, something like, charming boy, poor dear mother, and I are quite inseparable. Quite forget what he does, afraid he doesn't do anything. Oh, yes, plays the piano, or is it the violin? Dear Mr. Gray? Neither of us could help laughing, and we became friends at once. Laughter is not at all a bad beginning for a friendship, and it is far the best ending for one, said the young lord, plucking another daisy. Hallward shook his head. You don't understand what friendship is, Harry, he murmured. Or what enmity is, for that matter. You like everyone. That is to say, you are indifferent to everyone. How horribly unjust of you, cried Lord Henry, tilting his hat back and looking up at the little clouds that raveled skeins of glossy white silk were drifting across the hollowed turquoise of the summer sky. Yes, horribly unjust of you. I make a great difference between people. I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their good characters, and my enemies for their good intellects. A man cannot be too careful in the choice of his enemies. I have not got one who is a fool. They are all men of some intellectual power, and consequently they all appreciate me. Ooh, I lost my page there. There we go. I have not gone one who is a fool. They are all men of some intellectual power, and consequently, they all appreciate me. Is that very vain of me? I think it is rather vain. I should think it was, Harry. But according to your category, I must merely be an acquaintance. My dear old Basil, you are much more than an acquaintance. Much less than a friend. A sort of brother, I suppose. Brothers. I don't care for brothers. My elder brother won't die, and my younger brothers seem never to do anything else. Harry! exclaimed Hallward, frowning. My dear fellow, I'm not quite serious. But I can't help detesting my relations. I suppose it comes from the fact that none of us can stand other people having the same faults as ourselves. I quite sympathize with the rage of English democracy against what they call the vices of the upper orders. The masses feel that drunkenness, stupidity, and immorality should be their own special property, and that if any one of us makes an ass of himself, he is poaching on their preserves. When poor Southwark got into the divorce court, their indignation was quite magnificent, and yet I don't suppose that ten percent of the proletariat live correctly. I don't agree with a single word that you've said. And what is more, Harry, I feel sure you don't either. Lord Henry stroked his pointed brown beard, and tapped his toe of his patent leather boot with a tasseled ebony cane. How English you are, Basil! That is the second time that you have made that observation. If one puts forward an idea to a true Englishman, always a rash thing to do, he never dreams of considering whether the idea is right or wrong. 
The only thing he considers of any importance is whether one believes it oneself. Now the value of an idea has nothing whatsoever to do with the sincerity of the man who expresses it. Indeed, the probabilities are that more, the more insincere the man is, the more purely intellectual the idea will be, as in that the case it will not be colored by either his wants, his desires, or his prejudices. However, I don't suppose... I don't propose to discuss politics, sociology, or metaphysics with you. I like persons better than principles, and I like persons with no principles better than anything else in the world. Tell me more about Mr. Dorian Gray. How often do you see him? Every day. I couldn't be happy if I didn't see him every day. He is absolutely necessary to me. How extraordinary. I thought you would never care for anything but your art. He is all my art to me now, said the painter, gravely. Sometimes I think, Harry, that there are only two eras of, every, of any importance in the world's history. The first is the appearance of a new medium for art, and the second is the appearance of a new personality for art also. What the invention of oil painting was for, to the Venetians, the face of Antonius was to the late Greek sculpture, and the face of Dorian Gray will some day be to me. It is not merely that I paint from him, draw from him, sketch from him. Of course I have done all that, but he is much more to me than a model or a sitter. I won't tell you that I am dissatisfied with what I have done of him, or that his beauty is such that art cannot express it. There is nothing that art cannot express, and I know that the work I have done since I have met Dorian Gray as good work is the best work of my life. But in some curious way, I wonder, will you understand me? His personality has suggested to me an entirely new manner in art, an entirely new mode of style. I see things differently. I think of them differently. I can now recreate life in a way that was hidden from me before, a dream of form and days of thought. Who is it who says that? I forget, but it is Dorian Gray who has been to me. The merely invisible presence of this lad, for he seems to me little more than a lad, though he is really over twenty. His merely visible presence... Huh. I wonder, can you realize all that means? Unconsciously, he defines for me the lines of a fresh school, a school that is to have in it all the passion of romantic spirit, all the perfection of the spirit that is Greek, the harmony of soul and body, how much that is. We in our madness have separated the two, and have invented a realism that is vulgar, an ideality that is void, Harry, if you only knew what Dorian Gray is to me. You remember that landscape of mine, for which Anu offered me such a huge price, but with a, which I would never part with. It is one of the best things I've ever done. And why is it so? Because while I was painting it, Dorian Gray sat beside me. Some subtle influence passed from him to me, and for the first time in my life I saw in the plain woodland 
the wonder I had always looked for and always missed. Basil, this is extraordinary. I must see Dorian Gray. Hallward got up from the seat and walked up and down the garden. After some time he came back. Harry, he said, Dorian Gray is to me simply a motive in art. You might see nothing in him. I see everything in him. He is never more present in my work than when no image of him is there. He is a suggestion, as I have said, of a new manner. I find in him the curves of certain lines, in the loveliness and subtleties of certain colors. That is all. Then why won't you exhibit his portrait? asked Lord Henry. Because, without intending it, I have put into it some expression of all this curious artistic idolatry, of which, of course, I have never cared to speak to of him. I never cared to speak to him. He knows nothing about it. He shall never know anything about it, but the world might guess it. And I will not bear my soul to their shallow, prying eyes. My heart will never be put under their microscope. There is too much of myself in the thing, Harry, too much of myself. Poets are not so scrupulous as you are. They know how useful passion is for publication. Nowadays a broken heart will run to many editions. I hate them for it, cried Hallward. An artist should create beautiful things, but it should put nothing of his own life into them. We live in an age when men treat art as if it were meant to be a form of autobiography. We have lost the abstract sense of beauty. Some day I will show the world what it is, and for that reason the world shall never see my portrait of Dorian Gray. I think you're wrong, Basil. But I won't argue with you. It is the only intellectually lost who ever argue. Tell me, is Dorian Gray very fond of you? The painter considered for a few moments. He likes me, he answered, after a pause. I, I know he likes me. Of course, I flatter him dreadfully. I find a strange pleasure in saying things to him that I know I shall be sorry for having said. As a rule, he is charming to me. And we sit in the studio and talk of a thousand things. Now and then, however, he is horribly thoughtless and seems to take a real delight in giving me pain. Then I feel, Harry, that I have given away my whole soul to someone who treats it as if it were a flower to put in his coat, a bit of decoration to charm his vanity, an ornament for a summer's day. Days in summer, Basil, are apt to linger, murmured Lord, murmured Lord Henry. Perhaps you will tire sooner than he will. It is a sad thing to think of but there is no doubt that genius lasts longer than beauty. That accounts for the fact that we all take such pains to over-educate ourselves. In the wild struggle for existence, we want to have something that endures. And so we will fill our minds with rubbish and facts, in the silly hope of keeping our place. The thoroughly well-informed man, that is the modern ideal, 
and the mind of the thoroughly well-informed man is a dreadful thing. It is a bric-a-brac shop, all monsters and dust, and with everything priced above its proper value. I think you will tire first, all the same. Some day you will look at your friend, and he will seem to you to be a little out of, a little out of drawing, or you won't be, you won't like his tone of color or something. You will bitterly reproach him in your own heart, and seriously think that he has behaved very badly to you. The next time he calls, you will be perfectly cold and indifferent. It will be a great pity, for it will alter you. What you have told me is quite a romance, a romance of art, what one might call it, and the worst of having romance of any kind is that it leave one, leaves one so unromantic. Harry, don't talk like that. As long as I live, the personality of Dorian Gray will dominate me. You can't feel what I feel. You change too often. Ah, my dear Basil, that is exactly why I can feel it. Those who are faithful know only the trivial side of love. It is the faithless who know love's tragedies. And Lord Henry struck a light on a dainty silver case and began to smoke a cigarette with a self-conscious and satisfied air, as if he had summed up the whole world in a phrase. There was a rustle of chirruping sparrows in the green lacquer leaves of the ivy, and the blue cloud shadows chased themselves across the grass like swallows. How pleasant it was in the garden! And how delightful other people's emotions were, much more delightful than their ideas, it seemed to him. One's own soul and the passions of one's friends, those were the fascinating things in life. He pictured to himself with silent amusement the tedious luncheon that he had missed by staying so long with Basil Hallward. He had gone to his aunt's. He would have been sure to have met Lord Goodbody there. And the whole conversation would have been about feeding of the poor and the necessity for model lodging houses. Each class would have preached the importance of those virtues, for whose exercise there was no necessity in their own lives. The rich would have spoken on the value of thrift, and the idle grown eloquent over the dignity of labor. It was charming to have escaped all that. As he thought of his aunt, an idea seemed to strike him. He turned to Hallward and said, My dear fellow, I have just remembered. Remembered what, Harry? Where I heard the name of Dorian Gray. Where was it? asked Hallward, with a slight frown. Oh, don't look so angry, Basil. It was at my aunt Lady Agatha's. She told me she had discovered a wonderful young man who was going to help her in the East End, and that his name was Dorian Gray. I am bound to state that she never told me he was good-looking. Women have no appreciation of good looks. At least good women have not. She said that he was very earnest, and had a beautiful nature. I at once pictured to myself a creature with spectacles and lank hair, horribly freckled, and tramping about on huge feet. I wished I had known it was your friend. 
I'm very glad you didn't, Harry. Why? I don't want you to meet him. You don't want me to meet him? No. Mr. Gray is in the studio, sir, said the butler, coming into the garden. You must introduce me now, cried Lord Henry, laughing. The painter turned to his servant, who stood blinking in the sunlight. Uh, ask Mr. Gray to wait, Parker. I shall be in a few moments. The man bowed and went up the walk. Then he looked at Lord Henry. Dorian Gray is my dearest friend, he said. He has a simple and beautiful nature. Your aunt was quite right in what she said of him. Don't spoil him. Don't try to influence him. Your influence would be bad. The world is wide and has many marvelous people in it. Don't take away from me the one person who gives to my art whatever charm it possesses. My life as an artist depends on him. Mind, Harry, I trust you. He spoke very slowly, and the words seemed wrung out of him, as if against his will. What nonsense you talk, said Lord Henry, smiling, and taking Hallward by the arm. He almost led him into the house. End of the chapter. Oh, I don't have my... <gasps> Where is my... Um, thing. Right, well. There we go. Oof! Alright, that book is... Those chapters are longer than <laughs> Frankenstein's for sure. Oof. So. That was quite the lengthy chapter. That was about 16 pages, which I think that was like, that would have been like two chapters in Frankenstein. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Whew. A lot of stuff about the nature of art in this chapter. I was pretty taken aback by, by some of the writing. Um... <laughs> Well, I, I'm trying to, like, organize my thoughts as to what I want to talk about first, so give me a second. Let's talk about... Let's talk about the, the big thing. Um, and, and the reason why Dorian Gray is one of the... Like, a, a classic book of LGBTQ literature. Um, how much... How big of a crush uh, Basil has for Dorian Gray. Like, holy crap. It is like, he just, he will not shut up about this man. Um, and it's very sweet, of course. Like, it's, I, I don't think it's its something to be derided or, or made to make fun of him. I think it's actually quite sweet and innocent. I don't, and I don't think he realizes exactly what it means. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's very innocent and sweet. Um... And to a modern audience, I think that his his way of talking about Dorian Gray screams queer. I don't know that 
in the late 1800s, that would have screamed queer. I think it would have it would have shown a certain fondness for him. I don't know that it would have it would have kind of been read as necessarily love yet, right? One thing that has changed over the years, while while we have gotten, I, I suppose, more accepting of, of queerness, more accepting of, um, of you know, differences in, in, in ways of talking and talking about emotion um, somewhat. Um, one thing that has changed is speaking about people you care about with love. Talking about a friend in such passionate terms as Basil has is not something that is allowed. Like, you can't get away with that. If people will be like, what, you love that guy? Like, and, and I suppose it probably has something to do with toxic masculinity. Uh, but, I mean, it definitely has something to do with toxic masculinity. But, yeah, we, you can't talk about your friends that way anymore you just can't it's something that you you know you'll get made fun of for but here these two guys one of them an artist the other one i forget what lord henry actually does other than just be a lord uh, but you know just these two guys Casually talking about how it, one how attractive this man is, two how much Basil loves this man and how how that's something to be cherished. Like not once does Harry make fun of him for it, and that's something that I think is quite beautiful, for one. Um, but also something that you would not find nowadays. I think in a lot of ways, and maybe that's the people that I surround myself with, but in a lot of ways we have hidden ourselves from our feelings such that we can't talk to people about our feelings in the same way. We have to be cagey about it. We have to hide it, talk around it show it in other ways. And I think that's kind of sad. Especially for, I mean, you know, we know, with the benefit of historical context, that Basil probably has, you know, a queer crush on this guy. Um, but... At the time, Basil's not saying, you know, I love this man romantically. He's just saying that this man is so inspiring. And a person that he cares about de deeply. And that's not something to make fun of someone for. Why did my Microsoft Word just open? That's weird. I almost just shut down Streamlabs. That would have been awful. I don't know what Streamlabs does when you X out the screen in your live. Hopefully it just minimizes. 
um, or gives you like a, do you want to turn it off? Let's not test it out. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> it's the spirit of uh, Oscar Wilde, the opening up a Word document to talk to me and explain to me what he wanted to say or why he was doing it that way. That would be interesting. Could you imagine? Let's not get into that. <laughs> uh, but I think it is lovely. Um, and I'm so just pleased. Also, some of the, the words that were said in there, I was like, ooh, it's been 10 years. I, I definitely remember reading this. Like, some of those lines, I was like, ooh, I remember this line and being in high school and going, oh, that's so profound. That's like, you know. Like, when Lord Henry is talking about how intelligence and intellect makes you ugly and how any form of, of intellect immediately takes form and is visible. Um, I remember thinking of that. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and obviously, like, you know, it's more of like an impression thing than an actual, you know, real thing. But then again, I've seen, I've heard that same line said very recently forget what I was watching, but I watched something recently where they were talking about how beauty and, and, um, and intellect can't mesh up, uh, and you can't be a, a beautiful person and also be a smart person. What was I watching? <gasps> it was Queen's Gambit. Topical reference. It was Queen's Gambit, um... Which, you know, spoilers for Queen's Gambit, I guess. But um, when she's talking to the, the model, she says something to the same effect. That um, I'm forgetting what the main character's name is now. Beth. Beth could never be a model because she's too smart. And models have nothing going on. And so you can put any thought or emotion onto them. And they can represent that, whereas a smart person projects too much of themselves. Um, and thinking about that now, I'm like, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if that person read the picture of Dorian Gray, you know, the person who wrote that, and whether or not that came out. Um, yeah, there was a, a few lines like that. Um, also, while I was reading it, it was driving me insane while I was reading it. Uh, art inspires art. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an artist. I, you know, I like to write every once in a while, but I, I wouldn't consider myself an artist, though I have uh, known a number and I have one of my longest relationships was with an artist. Um, art inspires art is absolutely a thing. I think the impression at that time was that you needed to be surrounded by beauty 
or just, I, guess, I suppose, extreme drama of some kind, whether that was positive or negative, to be inspired. Right, back to what I was saying. Um, it was driving me nuts, because I kept reading Henry, and I kept reading Harry, and I could never, because it felt like every time I read Harry, it actually said Henry, and every time it said Henry, it said Harry. And I was like, is that a misprint? Is that what's going on? Um, I'm pretty sure that Henry, or sorry, Harry is a um, nickname for Henry. Uh, like, you know, that you would call your friend. You, your friend would be called Henry, and you would call him Harry um, as, as a friend, I think. That feels right. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's a common thing anymore. And so for me reading that, I was just like, what is going on? Why can't I get this right? I'm usually pretty good at reading names. <laughs> That that's why it's because they were alternating names. So, whether I'm talking about Lord Henry or Harry, they're the same person. Now we know, and I wasn't just going crazy. Um. Oh. When he, when Basil talks about, yeah, I have the line right here. An artist should create beautiful things, but should put nothing of his own life into them. We live in an age where we, where men treat art as if it were meant to be a form of autobiography. We have lost the abstract sense of beauty. Someday I will show the world what it is, and for that reason, the world shall never see my portrait of Dorian Gray. Oh, and then and then Harry disagrees with him. I think, especially based on what um, Oscar Wilde says himself. Um, well, let's, let's make sure that we're clear on, on who he thinks he is. Um, because Oscar Wilde said that Basil is what I think I am. So that is his opinion, or at least what he thinks it is. But Henry is what the world thinks of me. Dorian is what I would like to be. So we can almost read this as a discussion with himself, his own perceptions of himself and what the world perceives him to be. And so he, I suppose he would be then be saying that you should never read art as an autobiography for the artist, where the world is telling him that you should. I don't know if I agree with that. It was certainly a thing, and actually he's kind of ahead of his time for that. Um... This is something that we very much find in the early 1900s becomes very much a thing uh, with the rise of um, new criticism. There's this idea that 
art is outside of the author, the kind of the death of the author comes about around that time. Um, and for that, he's kind of ahead of his time. Um, that you, he's saying that you should not be looking um, for this to describe the the author. Um, I think that's really interesting, actually. I do find it really funny um, that he writes that. Uh, that you should not read this as a autobiography of him while also this is before he has at least the the, the one that that we know about uh an affair with another lord um so he spends his whole first chapter talking about you know don't read too much into this but you know there is still a an aspect of this that is even if even if it wasn't intentional um that is autobiographical io autobiographical it's a hard word to say hmm. anyway i'm enjoying this quite a bit um i don't know how i felt about um Henry just like dunking on that old woman um and but it does also feel very much like um like Oscar Wilde to just talk just speak ill about the upper classes all the time um to just be like yeah no she's just an old bag who will just wants to tell you everything to let you know that she knows everything about everyone. Um, and it's all about her vanity or something like that. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Maybe it's just like nowadays that would probably be something that I would object to. It feels like something that people would say, oh, that's just boys talk. And I go nuts when I hear shit like that. Like, when I hear people say, like, oh, it's just it's just boys being boys, you know? I'm like, no. Fuck that. I hate that shit. Um, so. Is it kind of a foreshadowing for Dorian? As in the way that Lord Henry behaves. Um, I would, I would say so. I, w I would think so. Uh, like, working from a 10 year old memory of this book, uh, like this is what he hates now, but could later turn into. Um, is it? let me think about that for a sec. As in Dorian could turn into that upper class, snooty, I know everything about everyone.
while I wait for your answer. I think, yeah. Um, without giving too much away from what I remember of the book, um, I don't think so. We will find out. Um, I think the thing that is more foreshadowing would be um, Basil's warning to Henry not to influence Dorian. That is much more foreshadowing. Especially because it came right at the end of the chapter. And he goes like, don't fuck this up for me, Henry. And then Henry goes, why would I do that? And then chapter end, that's much more foreshadowy than um, his discussion. I think more that, that, that little scene about him making fun of, um, I'm forgetting what her name is, um, is more indicative of how Oscar Wilde feels about upper class parties um, than anything else. Um, and because he goes at it again with Lord Henry, um, um, where was that? Where he talks about how, you know, you'll have rich people talking about what it means to be poor. And then he has, um, he talks about how, you know, lazy people talk about the benefits of labor, um, and just the absurdity of, of the bourgeoisie. Um, I think that fits in much more with that and but yeah I don't know there's a lot there um, I think I have time for one more I don't know how long this chapter is let me check oh yeah I think I can do one more so let's get into that uh, I'm just going to drink some water hi can I watch you uh, we're about to get started in the next chapter thank you appreciate it um, I'm about to get started on the next chapter, so I, I won't really be responding um, probably for the next, like, 20 minutes as I'm reading. Um, but I appreciate the compliment. So. Chapter 2. As they entered, they saw Dorian Gray. He was seated at the piano, with his back to them, turning over the pages of a volume of Schumann's forest scenes. You must lend me these, Basil. I want to learn them. They're perfectly charming. Oh, that entirely depends on how you sit today, Dorian. Oh, I'm tired of sitting. I don't want a life-size portrait of myself, answered the lad swinging around on the music stool in a willful, petulant manner. When he caught sight of Lord Henry, a faint blush colored his cheeks for a moment, and he started up. I beg your pardon, Basil. I didn't know you had anyone with you. 
Yes, this is Lord Henry Wotton, Dorian, an old Oxford friend of mine. I have just been telling him what a capital sitter you are, and now you have spoiled everything. You have not spoiled my pleasure in meeting you, Mr. Gray, said Lord Henry, stepping forward and extending his hand. My aunt has often spoken to me about you. You are one of her favorites, and I am afraid one of her victims also. I am in Lady Agatha's black books at present, answered Dorian with a funny look of penitence. I promised I would go to a club in Whitechapel with her last Tuesday, and I really forgot all about it. We were to have played a duet together, three duets, I believe. I don't know what she will say to me. I'm far too frightened to call. Ah, uh, I will make your peace with my aunt. She is quite devoted to you, and I don't think it really matters about your not being there. The audience probably thought it was a duet. When Aunt Agatha sits down to the piano, she makes quite enough noise for two people. <laughs> that is very horrid to her, and not very nice to me, answered Dorian, laughing. Lord Henry looked at him. Yes, he was certainly wonderfully handsome, with his finely curved scarlet lips, his frank blue eyes, his crisp golden hair. There was something in his face that made one trust him at once. All the candor of youth was there, as well as the youth's passionate purity. One felt that he had kept himself unspotted from the world. No wonder Basil Hallward worshipped him. You are too charming to go in for philanthropy, Mr. Gray. Far too charming. And Lord Henry flung himself down on the divan and opened his cigarette case. The painter had been busy mixing his colors and getting his brushes ready. He was looking worried, and when he heard Lord Henry's last remark, he glanced at him, hesitated for a moment, then said, Harry, I want to finish this picture today. Would you think it awfully rude of me if I asked you to go away? Lord Henry smiled and looked at Dorian Gray. Am I to go, Mr. Gray? he asked. Oh, Please don't, Lord Henry. I see that Basil is in one of his sulky moods, and I can't bear him when he sulks. Besides, I want you to tell me why I should not go in for philanthropy. I don't know that I shall tell you that, Mr. Gray. It is so tedious a subject that one would have to talk seriously about it. But I certainly shall not run away now that you have asked me to stop. You really don't mind, Basil, do you? You have often told me that you liked your sitters to have someone to chat to. Hallward bit his lip. If Dorian wishes it, of course, you must stay. Dorian's whims are laws to everybody except himself. Lord Henry took up his hat and gloves. You're very pressing, Basil, but I'm afraid I must go. I have promised to meet a man at Orléans. Goodbye, Mr. Gray. Come see me some afternoon in Curzon Street. I am nearly always at home at five o'clock. Write to me when you are coming. I should be sorry to miss you. Basil, 
If Lord Henry Wotton goes, I shall go too. You never open your lips while you're painting, and it is horribly dull standing on a platform trying to look pleasant. Ask him to stay. I insist on it. Stay, Harry. To oblige Dorian. And to oblige me. Said Hallward, gazing intently at his picture. It is quite true I never talk when I'm working. I never listen, either. It must be dreadfully tedious for my unfortunate sitters. I beg for you to stay. But what about my man at the Orléans? The painter laughed. I don't think there will be any difficulty about that. Sit down again, Harry. And now, Dorian, get up on the platform, and don't move about too much or pay any attention to what Lord Henry says. He's a very bad influence over all his friends, with the single exception of myself. Dorian Gray stepped up on the dais with the air of a young Greek martyr. He made a little moo of discontent to Lord Henry, to whom he had taken rather a fancy. He was so unlike Basil. He made a delightful contrast. And he had such a beautiful voice. After a few moments, he said to him, Have you really a bad influence, Lord Henry? As bad as Basil says. There's no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray. All influence is immoral. Immoral from the scientific point of view. Why? Because to influence a person is to give him one's own soul. He does not think his natural thoughts or burn with his natural passions. His virtues are not real to him. His sins if there are such things as sins, are borrowed. He becomes an echo of someone else's music, an actor of a part that was not written for him. The aim of life is self-development. To realize one's nature perfectly, that is what each of us is here for, people afraid of themselves nowadays. They have forgotten the highest of all duties, the duty that one owes to oneself. Of course they are charitable, they feed the hungry and clothe the beggar, but their own souls starve and are naked. Courage has gone out of our race. Perhaps we never really had it. The terror of society, which is the basis of morals, the terror of God, which is the secret of religion, these are the two things that govern us. And yet... Turn your head a little more to the right, Dorian. Like a good boy, said the painter, deep in his work, and conscious only that a look had come into the lad's face that he had never seen there before. And yet, continued Lord Henry in his low, musical voice, that with that grateful wave of the hand that was always so characteristic of him, and that he had even in his eaten days, I believe that if one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world would again such a fresh impulse of joy, that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenic ideal, something finer, richer than the Hellenic ideal it may be. But the bravest man among us is afraid of himself, 
The mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival in the self-denial that mars our lives. We are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and has done with its sin, for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws must have made monstrous and unlawful. It has been said that the great events of the world take place in the brain. It is in the brain, and the brain only, that the great sins of the world take place also. You, Mr. Grey, you yourself, with your rose-red youth and your rose-white boyhood, you have the passions that have made you afraid, thoughts that have filled you with terror, daydreams and dream sleeping dreams, whose mere memory might stain your cheek with shame. Stop, faltered Dorian Gray. Stop, you, you bewilder me. I don't know what to say. There is some answer to you, but I cannot find it. Don't speak. Let me think. Or rather, let me try not to think. For nearly ten minutes he stood there, motionless, with parted lips, his eyes strangely bright. He was dimly conscious that entirely fresh influences were at work within him. Yet they seemed to him to have come really from himself. The few words that Basil's friend had said to him, words spoken by chance, no doubt, and with willful paradox in them, had touched some secret chord that had never been touched before. But that he felt he was now vibrating and throbbing into curious pulses. Music had stirred in him like that. Music had troubled him many times, but music was not articulate. It was not a new world, but rather another chaos that had created in us words, mere words, how terrible they were, how clear and vivid and cruel. One could not escape from them, and yet what a subtle magic there was in them. They seemed to be able to give a plastic form to formless things, and have a music of their own as sweet as that of viol or of lute. Mere words. Was there anything so real as words? Yes. There had been things in his boyhood that he had not understood. He understood them now. Life suddenly became fiery-colored to him. It seemed to him that he had been walking in fire, why had he not known it? With his subtle smile, Lord Henry watched him. He knew the precise psychological moment when to say nothing. He felt intensely interested. He was amazed at the sudden impression that his words had produced, and remembering a book that he had read when he was sixteen, a book which had revealed to him much that he had not known before. He wondered whether Dorian Gray was passing through a similar experience. 
He had merely shot an arrow into the air. Had it hit its mark? How fascinating the lad was. Hallward painted away with that marvellous, bold touch of his that had the true refinement and perfect delicacy in art, at any rate, comes only from strength. He was unconscious of the silence. Basil, I'm tired of standing, cried Dorian Gray suddenly. I must go out and sit in the garden. The air is stifling here. My my dear fellow, I'm, I'm so sorry. When I'm painting, I can't think of anything else. But you never sat better. You were perfectly still, and I have caught the effect I wanted, the half-parted lips, the bright look in your eyes. I don't know what Henry has been saying to you, but he has certainly made you the most wonderful expression. I suppose he hasn't been paying you compliments. You mustn't believe a word, he says. He has certainly not been paying me compliments. Perhaps that is the reason I don't believe anything he has told me. You know you believe it all, said Lord Henry, looking at him with his dreamy, languorous eyes. I will go out to the garden with you. It is horribly hot in the studio, Basil. Let us have something ice to drink, something with strawberries in it. Certainly, Harry. Just touch the bell, and when Parker comes I will tell him what you want. I've got to work up this background, so I will join you later on. Don't keep Dorian too long. I've never been in better form for painting than I am today. This is going to be my masterpiece. It is my masterpiece as it stands. Lord Henry went out into the garden and found Dorian Gray burying his face in the great cool lilac blossoms, feverishly drinking in their perfume as if it had been wine. He came close to him and put his hand upon his shoulder. You're quite right to do that, he muttered. Nothing can cure the soul but the senses, just as nothing can cure the senses but the soul. The lad started and drew back. He was bareheaded, and the leaves had tossed his rebellious curls and tangled all their gilded threads. There was a look of fear in his eyes, such as people when they have, when they are suddenly awakened. His finely chiselled nostrils quivered, and there was some hidden nerve shook the scarlet of his lips and left them trembling. Yes, continued Lord Henry, that is one of the great secrets of life, to cure the soul by means of the senses, and the senses by means of the soul. You are a wonderful creation. You know more than you think you know, just as you know less than you want to know. Dorian Gray frowned and turned his head away. He could not help liking the tall, graceful young man who was standing by him. His romantic, olive-colored face and worn expression interested him. There was something in his low, languid voice that was absolutely fascinating. His cool, white, flower-like hands, even, had a curious charm. They moved, as he spoke, like music, and seemed to have a language of their own. But he felt afraid of him, and ashamed of being afraid. 
Why had it been left for a stranger to reveal him to himself? He had known Basil Hallward for months, but the friendship between them had never altered him. Suddenly there had come someone across his life who seemed to have disclosed to him life's mystery. And yet, what was there to be afraid of? He was not a schoolboy or a girl. It was absurd to be frightened. Let us go sit in the shade, said Lord Henry. Parker has brought out the drinks, and if you stay any longer in this glare, you'll be quite spoiled, and Basil will never paint you again. You really must not allow yourself to become sunburnt. It would be unbecoming. What can it matter? cried Dorian Gray, laughing as he sat down at the end of the garden. It should matter everything to you, Mr. Gray. Why? Because you have the most marvelous youth, and youth is the one thing worth having. I don't feel that, Lord Henry. No, you don't feel it now. Some day, when you are old and wrinkled and ugly, when thought has seared your forehead with its lines, and passion branded your lips with its hideous fires, you will feel it, and you will feel it terribly. Now, wherever you go, you charm the world. Will it always be so? You have a wonderfully beautiful face, Mr. Gray. Don't frown. You have. And beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It was one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime, or the reflection in the dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned as a divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile? Ah, when you have lost it, you won't smile. People say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so. But at least it is not so superficial as thought is. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is the only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Yes, Mr. Gray, the gods have been good to you. But what the gods give, they quickly take away. You only have few years in which to live really perfectly and fully when your youth goes your beauty will go with it and then you will suddenly discover that there are no triumphs left for you or have to content yourself with those mean triumphs that the memories of your past will make more bitter than defeats every month as it wanes brings you closer to something dreadful Time is jealous of you, and wars against your lilies and your roses. You will become sallow, and hollow-cheeked and dull-eyed. You will suffer horribly. <sighs> Realize your youth while you have it. Don't squander the gold of your days, listening to the tedious, trying to improve the hopeless failure, or giving away your life to the ignorant, the common, and the vulgar. These are the sickly aims, the false ideals of our age. 
Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost on you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing. A new hedonism. That is what our century wants. You might be its visible symbol. With your personality, there is nothing you could not do. The world belongs to you for a reason. The moment I met you, I saw that you were quite unconscious of what you really are. What you really might be. There was so much in you that charmed me that I felt I must tell you something about yourself. I thought how tragic it would be if you were wasted, for there is such a little time that youth will last, such a little time. The common hill flowers wither, but they blossom again. The laburnum will be as yellow next June as it is now. In a month there will be purple stars on the clematis, and a year after year the green night of its leaves will hold its purple stars, but we never get back our youth. The pulse of joy that beats in us at twenty becomes sluggish. Our limbs fail, our senses rot. We degenerate into hideous puppets, haunted by the memory of the passions of which we were too much afraid, and the exquisite temptations that we had not the courage to yield to. Youth! Oh, youth! There is absolutely nothing in the world but youth. Dorian Gray listened, open-eyed and wondering. A spray of lilac fell from his hand upon the gravel. A furry bee came and buzzed round it for a moment, then it began to scramble all over the oval, stellated globe of the tiny blossoms. He watched over it with that strange interest in trivial things that we try to develop when things of high import make us afraid, or when we are stirred by some new emotion for which we cannot find expression or when some thought that terrifies us lays sudden siege to the brain and calls on us to yield. After a time, the bee flew away. He saw it creeping into the strained trumpet of a Tyrian convolvulus. Wow, that's a hard word to say. A Tyrian convolvulus. The flower seemed to quiver, and then swayed gently to and fro. Suddenly, the painter appeared at the door of the studio and made staccato signs for them to come in. They turned to each other and smiled. I'm waiting, he cried. Do come in. The light is quite perfect, and you can bring your drinks. They rose up and sauntered down the walk together. Two green and white butterflies fluttered past them, and in the pear tree at the corner of the garden a thrush began to sing. "'You are glad to have met me, Mr. Gray,' said Lord Henry, looking at him. "'Yes, I am glad now. I shall one—I wonder, shall I always be glad?' "'Always. That is a dreadful word. It makes me shudder when I hear it. Women are so fond of using it. They spoil every romance by making it last forever. It is a meaningless word, too. 
the only difference between a caprice and a lifelong passion, that the caprice lasts a little longer. They entered the studio. Dorian Gray put his hand upon Lord Henry's arm. In that case, let our friendship be a caprice, he murmured, flushing as it at his own boldness, then stepped up on the platform and resumed his pose. Lord Henry flung himself into a large wicker armchair and watched him. The sweep and dash of the brush on the canvas made the only sound that broke the stillness, except when, now and then, Hallward stepped back to look at his work from a distance. In the slanting beams that streamed through the open doorway, the dust danced and was golden. The heavy scent of the roses seemed to brood over everything. After about a quarter of an hour, Hallward stopped painting looked for a long time at Dorian Gray, then for a long time at the picture, biting the end of one of his huge brushes and frowning. It is quite finished, he cried at last, and stooping down he wrote his name in long vermilion letters in the left-hand corner of the canvas. Lord Henry came over and examined the picture. It was certainly a wonderful work of art, and a wonderful likeness as well. My dear fellow, I congratulate you most warmly, he said. It is the finest portrait of modern times. Mr. Gray, come over and look at yourself. The lad started as if awakened by some dream. Is it really finished? he murmured, stepping down from the platform. Quite, quite finished, said the painter. And you have sat splendidly today. I am awfully obliged to you. That is entirely due to me, broke in Lord Henry. Isn't it, Mr. Gray? Dorian made no answer, but passed listlessly in front of this picture and turned towards it. When he saw it, he drew back. His cheeks flushed for a moment with pleasure. A look of joy came into his eyes, as if he had recognized himself for the first time. He stood there motionless and in wonder, dimly conscious that Hallward was speaking to him, but not catching the meaning of his words. A sense of his own beauty came on him like a revelation. He had never felt it before. Basil Hallward's compliments had seemed to him to be merely the charming exaggerations of friendship. He had listened to them, laughed at them, forgotten them. They had not influenced his nature. Then had come Lord Henry Wotton, with his strange panegyric on youth, his terrible warning of its brevity that had stirred in him at the time, and now he stood gazing at the shadow of his own loveliness. The full reality of the description flashed across him. Yes, there would be a day when his face would be wrinkled and wizen, his eyes dim and colorless, colorless, the grace of his finger of his figure broken and deformed, the scarlet would pass away from his lips, and the gold steal from his hair. The life that was to make his soul would mar his body. He would become dreadful, hideous, and uncouth. As he thought of it, a sharp pang of pain struck through him like a knife, and made each delicate fibre of his nature quiver. 
His eyes deepened into amethyst, and across them came a mist of tears. He felt as if a hand of ice had been laid on his heart. "'Don't you like it?' cried Hallward at last, stung a little by the lad's silence, not understanding what it meant. "'Of course he likes it,' said Lord Henry. "'Who wouldn't like it? It's one of the greatest things in modern art. I will give you anything you like to ask for it. I must have it.' "'It's not my property, Harry.' "'Whose property is it?' "'It's Dorian's, of course,' answered the painter. "'He is a very lucky fellow.' "'How sad it is,' murmured Dorian Gray, "'with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait. "'How sad it is! "'I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful.' but this picture will always remain young. I will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way, if it were I who was to always be young, in the picture that was to grow old, for that, for that I would give everything. Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. You would hardly care for such an arrangement, Basil, cried Lord Henry, laughing. It would be rather hard lines on your work. I should object very strongly, Harry, said Hallward. Dorian Gray turned and looked at him. I believe you would, Basil. You like your art better than your friends. I'm no more to you than a green bronze figure. Hardly as much, I dare say. The painter stared in amazement. It was so unlike Dorian to speak like that. What had happened? He seemed quite angry. His face, his face was flushed and his cheeks burning. Yes, he continued. I am less to you than your ivory Hermes or your silver fawn. You will like them always. How long will you like me? Till I have my first wrinkle, I suppose. I know now that when one loses one's good looks, whatever they may be, one loses everything. Your picture has taught me that. Lord Henry Wotton is perfectly right. Youth is the only thing worth having. When I find that I am growing old, I shall kill myself. Hallward turned pale and caught his hand. Dorian! Dorian! he cried. Don't talk like that! I have never had such a friend as you, and I shall never have another. You are not jealous of material things, are you? You who are finer than any of them. I am jealous of everything whose beauty does not die. I am jealous of the portrait that you have painted of me. Why should it keep what I must lose? Every moment that passes takes something from me and gives something to it. Oh, if it were the other way, if the picture could change and I could always be what I am now. Why did you paint it? It will mock me some day, mock me horribly. The hot tears welled into his eyes. He tore his hand away and flinging himself on the divan, he buried his face in the cushions as though he was praying. "'This is your doing, Harry,' said the painter bitterly. 
Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. It is the real Dorian Gray. That is all. It is not. If it is not, what have I to do with it? You should have gone away when I asked you, he muttered. I stayed when you asked me, was Lord Henry's answer. Harry, I can't quarrel with my two best friends at once, but between you both you have made me hate the finest piece of work I have ever done, and I will destroy it. What is it but canvas and color? I will not let it come across our three lives and mar them. Dorian Gray lifted his golden head from the pillow, and with pallid face and tear-stained eyes looked at him as he walked over to the deal painting table that was set beneath the high-curtained window. What was he doing there? His fingers were straying about the litter of tin tubes and dry brushes, seeking for something. Yes, it was for the long palette-knife, with its thin blade of lithe steel. He had found it at last. He was going to rip up the canvas. With a stifled sob, the lad leaped from the couch, and rushing over to Hallward, tore the knife out of his hand and flung it to the end of the studio. Don't, Basil, don't, he cried. It would be murder. I am glad you appreciate my work at last, Dorian, said the painter coldly. When he had recovered from his surprise, I never thought you would. Appreciate it. I am in love with it, Basil. It is part of myself. I feel that. Well, as soon as you are dry, you shall be varnished and framed and sent home. Then you can do what you like with yourself. And he walked across the room and rang the bell for tea. You will have tea, of course, Dorian, and so will you, Harry. Or do you object to such simple pleasures? I adore simple pleasures, said Lord Henry. They are the last refuge of the complex. But I don't like scenes except on the stage. What absurd fellows you are, both of you. I wonder who it was to find a man as rational animal. It was the most premature definition ever given. Man is many things, but he is not rational. I am glad he is not, after all, though I wish you chaps would not squabble over the picture. You had much better let me have it, Basil. A silly boy doesn't really want it, and I really do. If you let anyone have it but me, Basil, I shall never forgive you, cried Dorian Gray. And I don't allow people to call me a silly boy. You know the picture is yours, Dorian. I gave it to you before it existed. And you have been a little silly, Mr. Gray, in that you don't really object to being reminded that you are extremely young. I should have objected very strongly this morning, Lord Henry. Ah, this morning. You have lived since then. There came a knock at the door, and the butler entered with a laden tea tray and set it down upon a small Japanese table. There was a rattle of cups and saucers and the hissing of a fluted Georgian urn. Two globe-shaped china dishes were brought in by a page, 
Dorian Gray went over and poured out the tea. The two men sauntered languidly to the table and examined what was under the covers. Let us go to the theatre tonight, said Lord Henry. There's sure to be something on, somewhere. I have promised to dine at White's, but it is only with an old friend, so I can send him a wire to say that I am ill, or that I have been prevented from coming in consequence of a subsequent engagement. I think that would be a rather nice excuse. It would have all the surprise of candor. It is such a bore putting on one's dress clothes, muttered Hallward. And when one has them on, they are so horrid. Yes, answered Lord Henry dreamily. The costume of the nineteenth century is detestable. It is so somber and so depressing. Sin is the only real colour element left in modern life. But you really must not say such things like that before Dorian, Harry. Before which, Dorian? The one who is pouring out tea for us? Or the one in the picture? Before either. I should like to come to the theatre with you, Lord Henry, said the lad. Then you shall come. And you will too, Basil, won't you? I can't, really. I would sooner not. I have a lot of work to do. Well, then you and I will go alone, Mr. Gray. I should like that awfully. The painter bit his lip and walked over, cup in hand, to the picture. I shall stay with the real Dorian, he said sadly. Is it the real Dorian? said the original of the portrait, strolling across to him. Am I really like that? Yes, you are just like that. How wonderful, Basil. At least, you are like it in appearance, but it will never alter, sighed Hallward. That is something. What a fuss people make about fidelity, exclaimed Lord Henry. Why, even in love, it is purely a question for physiology. It has nothing to do with our own will. Young men want to be faithful and are not. Old men want to be faithless and cannot. That is all one can say. Don't go to the theatre tonight, Dorian, said Hallward. Stop and dine with me. I can't, Basil. Why? Because I have promised Lord Henry Wotton to go with him. He won't like you the better for keeping your promises. He always breaks his own. I beg you not to go. Dorian Gray laughed and shook his head. I entreat you. The lad hesitated and looked over at Lord Henry, who was sitting the, watching them from the tea table with an amused smile. I must go, Basil. Very well, said Hallward, and he went over and laid his cup on the tray. It is rather late, and you have to dress. You had better lose no time. Goodbye, Harry. Goodbye, Dorian. Come and see me soon. Come tomorrow. Certainly. You won't forget? 
No, of course not, cried out Dorian. And Harry? Yes, Basil? Remember what I asked you when we were in the garden this morning? I haven't forgotten it. I trust you. I wish I could trust myself, said Lord Henry, laughing. Come, Mr. Gray, my hansom is outside, and I can drop you at your own place. Goodbye, Basil. It has been a most interesting afternoon. As the door closed behind them, the painter flung himself down on a sofa, and a look of pain came into his face. End of the chapter. Oof. So, once again, I must drink some water here. I have to find better times to drink. Okay. So, first meeting of Dorian Gray. And then immediately, we don't really get an impression of who he is as a person. We don't get any of that. We just get um, his reaction to Lord Henry. We don't ever get to learn who he is before Henry makes an impression on him. And I find it kind of fitting that we have no idea who he is other than other people's impressions of him and who he, who he is at the moment that he meets Lord Henry. It is It kind of mirrors the portrait in a way that at that moment we get a picture of who he is and that's going to change. And that moment in time is kind of a fleeting thing and has changed immediately. This is another moment that I remember reading in high school and was um, <laughs> the word that came to mind was scandalized uh, but it wasn't scandalous it was more of that, that idea that was so fascinating um I really identified a lot with Dorian Gray when reading this. Um, when Lord Henry is talking about the only way of life, the only good way to live your life is to reach out and take what you want. Not just to do the things that to, to you know, grasp things for power, but whatever whims whatever thoughts feelings whatever you want do it he's very much i mean he says it outright he's advocating for hedonism uh, which is the practice of just not really caring about consequence that it's a it's a moral perspective that anything that is pleasurable is good and nothing can go against that. And 
for you know 16 17 year old me that was wild <clears throat> and i think even now it's kind of something that i don't quite have that okay <laughs> obviously I'd, I, i'm not a hedonist or not i, I couldn't say obviously because you don't know me that well um but i'm not i'm not the type of person that would just kind of do everything that i want uh based on whether or not it's pleasurable or not um i think there is definitely an aspect but there is something to be said about um not just giving in to your whims at all times um but it is it is wonderfully tempting, isn't it? To think about what if what if I just did everything that I wanted at all times and I didn't care what the consequences were. I just did it. Very, very interesting thing to consider. Um, and in thinking of that, my brain immediately went, that is an extremely privileged position to hold. Extremely privileged position to hold. Because not everyone is in the position to be able to do everything they wanted. These people in the book are able to do, or rather, Lord Henry is able to do whatever he wants because he's a lord. There are expect there are expectations on lords, of course, um, but for the most part, he can kind of do whatever the heck he wants. The only thing that might suffer is his reputation. Whereas, both in that time and now most people don't have that luxury that to do whatever it is that you want to do like i couldn't today just do whatever the hell i wanted i have work in the morning i have to go i have to do you know i have to be responsible I have to, you know, get a good night's rest and be ready to teach my class tomorrow. I couldn't, I mean, you know, pandemic aside, I couldn't, you know, go out and go on a bender, you know, going for an evening of just debauchery. As fun as that would be after a year of just being in a pandemic, um can't do that i have responsibilities um and if i the, the key here is that if i were to just not do those things and just indulge in what i want to do uh, my work would suffer and then eventually i would probably lose my job and i would not be able to do what i want and i have a, fa a fairly well-paying job there are people who must work every day, all day, and, you know, 
have to hustle to, to make it through and can't afford to just do what they want all the time. So it is a very privileged position to hold that. But it is very fascinating. And so it makes sense that, um, I think it is something that, that definitely makes sense to, to have Dorian be so fascinated by it. I mean, I was captivated by it. At, I mean, a younger age than Dorian, because they say that Dorian is over 20. But, you know, it is captivating and enticing. Plus, when you're Dorian's level of beauty and you're a model, like that's what he does, uh, and presumably upper class, um, you wouldn't exactly, you know, have to worry about that kind of stuff. He is good looking enough that he can just get by on his beauty. And that's it. We did get a little bit of foreshadowing of what is going to happen with the whole commentary on I wish that the painting would age and I would stay the same. I'm trying not to dig into my memories too much about what comes next. I don't know if that means that it's just done and he's had such a focus on it that it's now done and he the painting is going to age and he is not. Or if there's something more later. This doesn't seem like the type of book that would have very overt magic, you know? Like, fantasy elements like that. That I, It could be something as subtle as, I wish the book would age and not me. And then there you go, it's done. Could be. Who knows? Either way, I do not think I have enough time to do another chapter, unfortunately. Because uh, the chapters in this book are fairly long. They're about 15 or so pages each. And so it takes me about 30 to 40 minutes each time I read a chapter. Um, so we've gotten through about, I would say... About 10% of the book tonight. Uh, and we had some chat at the beginning and, and uh, preface. So hopefully it will, it'll pick up the pace a little bit next time. Uh, that's where we're going to end tonight. Um, if you came in a little bit late, uh, you can always uh, come back and watch the VOD. I have also decided that I will be uh, downloading the video uh, and uploading it to YouTube. So you'll you'll be able to go and find them there. So even, you know, later on, once the highlights are gone, you in the in future, you know, if you miss another week, you can always go back and go to YouTube and find my my previous catalog there. Unfortunately, Frankenstein is not on there. Um, by the time I had realized that I could do that, um, the first uh, the first couple I think sessions had been um, removed from Twitch, so I can't 
go back and, and do that. However, um, from now on, I'm going to try to do that. I'm also going to be looking to make a uh, podcast version of this so that you just get the audio. So if you just want to listen to it, you can always do the podcast version. Um, keep an eye on my Twitter. I will be posting about it then. Um, so you can keep an eye on that. Uh, my Twitter is uh, just down here in the bottom left of your screen. So um, you can go there and look. Um, and I will keep you posted on that. Other than that, um, I'm probably going to be playing some games later on this week, especially because it's uh, I'm kind of in between a lot of D&D stuff um, this, for the next couple weeks, so I might replace my Wednesday night with a, a video game. Um, and then next Saturday I will be on uh, Polished Cryptids channel for um, a D&D game. So you can come watch me there if you're curious. And yeah, that's where we're going to end things for tonight. I hope you had a lovely evening. Hopefully the later time slot is good for you. I thought maybe if it went a little bit later, people would be a little bit more into a settling in for the evening kind of mood and just chill. Um, hopefully that works out. Uh, we're probably going to keep this time slot for this. Uh, and we will be back next Sunday for the start of Chapter 3.